Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Jill Escher from the Escher Fund for Autism, and welcome to the fifth in our webinar series, Exploiting Genetics to Identify Environmental Risks for Autism. Um, I'm actually going to give it a few seconds here. It takes people a while to log on through the system. They usually log on right at this stated start time, and it takes them a little bit. But this webinar uh, features Dr. Mark Zilka and Dr. Valerie Hugh, and your hosts today are Matt Pletcher, who is the Vice President for Genomics at Autism Speaks, Alicia Halliday, who is the Chief Science Officer at Autism Science Foundation, and myself. Um, if you're interested in uh, listening into any of our past webinars, they are all archived online. Um, you can find them actually in three different places, but you can find them at the Autism Science Foundation podcast, which is asfpodcast.org, or at my science education website, which is germlineexposures.org. And um, several of them are up on the Autism Speaks website as well. We have uh, one webinar coming up, and I didn't write down that uh, date, but it is May 4th with Dr. Janine LaSalle from the UC Davis Mind Institute investigating gene by environment interactions in single gene autisms. Uh, a couple logistical notes. Um, if you have questions for either or both of the presenters, you can type those into the question bar, which is in the control panel at the right of your screen. Uh, if, if you have problems with the question bar, you can use the chat function and just direct it to the organizers. And uh, if for some reason, uh, oh, and we will take questions after Dr. Zilka presents, and then more questions after both of them present at the end. Um, if you're having trouble seeing the presentation screen, please look under your browser. Sometimes it's hiding under there. Uh, attendees are on mute, so um, you, you know, don't worry, we won't hear you. And panelists and organizers, you can mute yourselves when you're not talking, so people can't hear you as well. Um, if you are calling in and you ha do have a question and you're not at your computer, feel free to email questions to Dr. Halliday at ahalliday, that's A-H-A-L-L-A-D-A-Y, at AutismScienceFoundation.org. Uh, the webinar is being recorded and will be archived. I know a lot of times people can only stay to watch a portion of it but want to watch the whole thing um, because of work conflicts or whatever. So uh, do rest assured that it is being recorded. Um, and um, what else am I missing here? I do think that the webinar will end up lasting about an hour and a half. All right? Uh, Matt Pletcher, I am going to turn it over to you. Great. Thank you very much, Jill. And, and so I'm going to introduce Dr. Zilka here. And, uh, and really, I think we're quite fortunate to have uh, Dr. Zilka present today. And I think it's also quite timely. Um, as some of you may be aware, just last week, we, uh, Stephen Shear from SickKids Hospital published uh, the latest paper coming out of Autism Speaks missing project in nature neuroscience. What, what missing is, is this is a, a effort being undertaken 
to use whole genome sequencing to better understand the genetics and the, and the biology of autism. And this, this paper um, described the first 5,000 whole genomes that have come out of this study. And among its findings, it did identify 18 new genetic subtypes of autism or 18 new genes which do uh, predispose, increase the likelihood that someone might develop autism. But you know, at the same time that this paper continues to highlight the heterogeneity, the, the real complex genetics that are part of the biology of autism, it of course is only part of the picture. That in fact one of the, the biggest gaps in our knowledge right now is, is the fact that genetics doesn't act alone, that in fact very much part of how autism manifests itself, how it represents in the medical and behavioral issues that are present with it is that interaction between genes and environment. And so that's why I think it's very important to hear about the kind of work that Dr. Zilk is doing to help tie these sorts of discoveries together. As we continue to expand this list of genes, right along with it, we need to continue to understand how environment interacts with those genes to actually drive this underlying biology. So to that end, Mark Zilka is the director of the Neuroscience Center at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He received his BS in biochemistry from Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University and his PhD in neurobiology from Harvard University. While at Harvard, he identified several of the core circadian clock genes. These are the genes that, that control our sleep-wake cycles as well as other sorts of biological rhythms and determined how these genes contribute to circadian rhythms in mammals. As a postdoctoral fellow at the California Institute of Technology, I identified a large family of receptors that regulate pain and itch. Mark Silka's lab focuses on pain research and studying genetic and environmental risks for autism. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Mark and his talk on exploiting genetics to, to identify environmental risks for autism. Mark, thank you so much for, for coming and talking today. Well, thank you, Matt, and uh, thank you, Jill, for inviting me. Um, I have to say, this is my uh, first uh, webinar, um, and it's quite a relaxed uh, way of doing things. I'm sitting back in my office drinking my coffee. I hope uh, many of you out there are also uh, enjoying enjoying the afternoon or evening, depending on where you where you live. Um, can you all see my slides? Okay, I've just put them up. Can you guys can you see them? Okay, so um, today I'm going to talk about uh, some of the work that's going on in our lab to, to, to that's really taking advantage of this wealth of genetic information that's coming out of these autism se uh, genome sequencing studies um, and to, to sort of uh, explain how we're using that information to try and identify environmental risk factors for autism. I'd like to start with this slide. This is a, a slide showing autism prevalence in the United States. It's taken from uh, data, data from the CDC and other sources. And as you can clearly see, the, the prevalence um, in the U.S. has been on a dramatic uh, uh, rise. I'm getting my pointer here. Um, the uh, prevalence is now um, 1 in 68 individuals uh, diagnosed as of March 31st, just of last year. And there's been a lot of debate in the field as to what's driving this increase. Um, is there some strong environmental factor? Um, um, ultimately, I think um, uh, the, the bulk of this increase is really related to changing diagnostic criteria uh, and increased awareness. And that's what a lot of studies have really pointed to. 
Um, so it's not really meant to be an alarmist, um, but it just highlights that um, you know, more and more individuals are being diagnosed with, with autism these days. The, the, the disorder features core symptoms, um, communication, you know, verbal and nonverbal communication deficits, as well as repetitive or restricted behaviors. Um, despite this increase, there, there clearly are genetic and environmental risks that, that seem to be contributing to this. Uh, disorder, and that's really you know the the heart of what our, our lab is interested in. We also know from the prevalence data that boys, uh, males, are much more likely to develop autism than girls. Uh, roughly four and a half times more boys are affected than than girls. Let me see if I can change my display here. Okay. And so based on heritability, uh, we know that uh, autism has a very strong we has a very strong uh, genetic basis. Um, heritability estimates range anywhere from 50 to 80 percent. That means that there are um, genes, uh, common variants that you're uh, getting from your mom or your dad that are greatly increasing uh, the risk for autism. But these uh, common variants alone don't seem to be what ultimately pushes a genome over the edge to, to autism. And so there have been a number of studies uh, trying to look at uh, where this heritability is coming from. Uh, and so this is a really nice uh, uh, paper from Joe Buxbaum's group uh, highlighting that the inherited variants, um, which are shown over here, uh, account for at least 52% of all of, of autism liability. And the bulk of this is coming from common inherited variants. So single nucleotide polymorphisms that are present in mom and dad uh, create, a, create a genome that is uh, primed or re, you know, either sensitized or resistant um, to subsequent uh, uh, perturbations. And so um, additional elements of heritability include uh, rare inherited uh, variants, so like MECP2 or UB3A, which is a gene that we, we study uh, quite frequently in the context of Angelman syndrome. Um, and so a lot of these recent exome sequencing studies have been focused on another source of uh, uh, another genetic source, and that, are, and that is these de novo mutations. These are new mutations that are present in the proband or the, the child with autism that are not present in, in the parents. And it's thought that these mutations alone can push an individual from not having autism to having autism. But in other cases, the penetrance isn't 100%. It may just increase risk depending on your genetic background. And we can often think about the male-female bias as a perfect example of this. In many cases, um, the, the burden, the genetic burden to develop autism in females is much higher than males. So this is another a good example of how genetic background can influence your propensity for, for autism risk. And so uh, obviously my talk is uh, all about environment today. Uh, and there's definitely the, the way we think about environment is that um, environmental risks could be very similar to these de novo mutations. You have an individual who has a sensitized genetic background, but that alone doesn't cause autism. Uh, you can get a de novo mutation in that sensitized background, and that pushes you over the edge. Uh, but it's also possible that there could be an environmental risk that pushes a sensitized genome over the edge. And so our lab is really focused on trying to identify what these environmental risks might be. 
And, and so the approach we're taking is to really borrow a page from the, the really revolutionary work that's being done by Autism Speaks, uh, the Simons Foundation, and the NIH to, to identify de novo mutations that are linked to autism. And these studies have, uh, have been amazing. They've literally identified thousands of de novo mutations uh, that are linked to autism risk. I highlight a few of them here. I'll focus uh, just on CHD8 uh, for the time being. And so this is one of the more um, commonly uh, mutated genes. It's mutated in about one out of every 200 individuals with autism. This is a chromodomain uh, helicase. Uh, but collectively, these de novo mutations um, hit uh, hundreds of, of distinct genes. Um, and, and so we know that, as, as Matt had alluded to, that there's great genetic heterogeneity to autism. And so the question is, might environment at some level be working similar to these de novo mutations? These genes are, are obviously going to be within certain molecular pathways. Um, if there are environmental risks that target some of these same molecular pathways, might they push a sensitized genome over the edge? And so I'd like to argue uh, that our, our inability to identify these environmental threats to the brain early represents one of the biggest biomedical challenges of our time. Uh, and particularly um, given that we have the potential to identify these before they cause disease. Unlike these de novo gene mutations, which cannot be avoided, these chemical exposures could be minimized or eliminated, particularly during critical periods of brain development. So if we can identify these risks, there's the potential to at least eliminate uh, uh, the, an environmental um, factor that's pushing some of these genomes over the edge. So we have the potential to reduce the prevalence of what I like to think of as an avoidable form of autism. And so how are we doing this? And so our lab has taken a perspective approach. Um, this is distinguished from a retrospective approach, which is common uh, in, in, the, in the area of epidemiology. And so in epidemiological studies, you'll take a population of individuals with autism, for example, uh, and then sort of work backwards to try and find out what those individuals or the, the mother might have, been, might, have, might have been exposed to during pregnancy. And so you know, the problem with these studies is that you, is that you already have several, you, know, you have a whole population of individuals who already have autism. Um, ideally, what you'd like to do is to identify a risk, something that could cause autism before it actually happens. And so our approach is to focus on environmental use chemicals, because chemicals are much easier to, to work with as opposed to um, other uh, environmental insults that, that, um, that one could envision. And so our, our idea is to try and identify environmental use chemicals that target the same molecular pathways that are affected by de novo autism-linked mutations. And so what do we know about these pathways? And so from these sequencing, exome sequencing studies, um, hundreds if not thousands of genes have been identified. Um, fortunately, these aren't, uh, it doesn't look like we're going to have hundreds to thousands of different types of autism. Uh, many of these genes ultimately cluster within a much smaller number of molecular pathways. This is just one of many recent studies that tried to reduce the heterogeneity by, by looking at genetic genes and the pathways, the molecular pathways that they, they occupy. And two of the pathways that really pop up in a number of these studies, um, number one is this shown as C2 up here. Many of the autism-linked mutations are in genes associated with synaptic function um, and cell-cell adhesion. 
there also are a number of autism-linked genes that are uh, in the Wnt beta-catenin pathway um, or genes associated with embryonic development. I'll also just briefly highlight this C4 pathway because uh, genes associated with chromatin or histone modification as well as the immune response are also um, uh, frequently uh, hit in individuals with autism. And so these molecular pathways give us a, a smaller number of targets or molecular targets to focus on. And so I want to begin by um, highlighting some of the work we've done in the context of synaptic function. And so as many of you know, uh, synapses are the points of communication between neurons. Uh, this is the, the location where neurotransmitter is released from a presynaptic neuron and activates a postsynaptic neuron. And synapses for, for many years now have been implicated in autism pathogenesis. And so what I'm showing you here is a blow-up of a, of a synapse, the presynaptic side uh, shown here with synaptic vesicles. These vesicles get released into the synaptic cleft and activate neurotransmitter receptors on the postsynaptic side, and, that what, and that's what leads to transmission of electrical um, information in the brain. And so we, we, we know that these synapses are built uh, with a number of proteins, cell adhesion molecules, neurotransmitter receptors. Um, several years ago, um, we, in a study that we published, um, shown down here, King et al., we noticed that uh, a number of genes implicated in autism, particularly these synaptic genes, were extremely long, meaning they take up a lot of space in the, the genome. And so I circled in red a number of the genes or gene families that we identified as being unusually long um, and that had autism, um, autism candidates. And now what I've shown here is the, the gene length. And as you can see, uh, every one of these genes is well over 100 kilobases in length. And I like to highlight Norexin-3. Uh, this is one of the longest genes in the genome. It's 1.6 megabases or 1,612 kilobases. And so this is the Norexin-3 gene drawn to scale relative to the average length gene, which is about 60 kilobases. And so as you can see, these long genes are fundamentally different in size. This is over 20 to 25 times longer than your average gene. And I think when people think about genes, they don't really think much beyond whether or not a gene is on or off. But when a gene is turned on, uh, it has to be transcribed and a short gene like this, RNA polymerase, will start at the beginning of the gene and go to the end. And it polymerase moves at a certain rate uh, of about 3.7 kilobases per minute. Um, and to, to transcribe a, an average gene, it takes about 10 minutes. To transcribe a very long gene like Norexin-3, it can take anywhere from 6 to 10 hours. And so as you can imagine, in a neuron, uh, 6 to 10 hours is a very long time. And over the course of development, a lot is happening during development in six to 10 hours. And so if you have some sort of environmental uh, risk uh, or something happen to the neuron that would kick the RNA polymerase off this gene, you're not going to get a full-length transcript of Norexin-3, whereas you can get expression of a shorter gene. And so this sort of highlights how these long genes are particularly have the potential to be sensitive to transcriptional stresses. And indeed, this is something we found in, um, in, a, in a study that I'm going to tell you about. Uh, in a few slides. But before I do, I just want to highlight that this this feature of very long genes seems to be unique uh, to, to the nervous system. What you're looking at here is expression data from many different tissues. This is actually um, 
expression data from um, uh, a group that where Matt Pletcher used to work at the Genomics Institute of the Novartis Foundation, where they um, looked at expression of many different mouse tissues. We downloaded that uh, tissue and then uh, uh, computed a single number, which we call a length correlation here. Uh, and basically what this represents is whether or not uh, any one of these tissues is uh, expressing at a high level long transcripts or short transcripts. And so if the length correlation is positive or greater than one, then longer transcripts are overrepresented in that tissue. If it's negative, then, uh, then uh, shorter transcripts are overrepresented. We highlighted all of the neural tissues in red. And as you can clearly see, uh, brain regions, uh, neural tissues, all have a positive length correlation with a, with a few exceptions. And these tend to be um, uh, like the olfactory epithelium, nasal epithelium, et cetera. All of the other tissues have a negative length correlation. And so neuron, uh, neuronal tissues are unique when it comes to long genes. And then fortunately, with the advent of single cell sequencing, in particular, this uh, paper from Zeisel et al., they looked at the transcriptomes of the, the principal cell types in the brain, uh, ranging from pyramidal neurons all the way to microglia. Uh, and what's clear is that the, the cell type that's driving this length correlation in these brain regions are the neurons. So pyramidal neurons and interneurons disproportionately express long genes uh, more so than other cell types. And so this, this highlights the, the, the potential and the, I guess the relative risk of these uh, neuronal cell types for any kind of perturbation that can affect uh, the expression of long genes. And so a few years ago, we found that one class of chemicals, uh, topoisomerase inhibitors, had uh, the ability to really affect long genes, uh, long gene expression, not just in neurons, but in other cell types. And so this is one of the, uh, the ways we show this data. This is looking at gene expression uh, from cultured cortical neurons um, using two different platforms, microarray and RNA-seq. And what we show here is gene expression change comparing drug, in this case topotecan, which is a type is a, to, a TOP1 inhibitor. So drug versus vehicle. So zero would be no change in expression. And to sort of clean up the otherwise noisy uh, genome-wide data, we plotted, we binned all of the data. So each of these dots represents the average expression change of 200 genes. And this is organized by length. And what you can clearly see is that the shorter genes um, uh, are maybe increased a little bit in expression relative to uh, zero. But then at around 100 kilobases, there's a dramatic reduction in expression such that the longer transcripts are more profoundly affected by this drug. Um, and it was, it was quite remarkable when we looked at the, the, the list of genes that were affected. Um, I, I would often joke with people in my lab about like, going to Las Vegas, not that I'm a betting man, but we could go to Las Vegas and all I would need to know is how long the gene was and I could accurately uh, predict whether or not the gene was going to go up or down with topoisomerase inhibitors. If the gene was, under, uh, was over 100 kilobases, the odds were really good that the gene would be uh, reduced in expression. So this is really a, a remarkable feature, but it was these long genes that we, that really, looking at these long genes is what really clued us in to this idea that, that many of them are um, long and uh, many of the long genes are synaptic genes. And so we also showed that these effects are not permanent. Um, at the transcriptional level, the effects wash out. Uh, and we also showed this at the protein level. This is a, a Western blot looking at uh, one of the long uh, 
pro, one of the proteins in Rexin 1, which is encoded by a long transcript. And so what, you're, what you see here, these are cultured cortical neurons, either vehicle-treated or treated with topotecan for 72 hours. Um, you can see that the protein level of norexin-1 is dramatically reduced uh, in these cultures. It's almost as if the gene has been knocked down genetically. But instead of a genetic manipulation, this was a, a single drug. And you can see that after washing the drug out for 24, 48, or 72 hours, the protein levels of norexin-1 come back. So this is a transient effect uh, that occurs only in the presence of these drugs. We then looked at another gene, neuroligand 1, which is also an autism candidate and is also long. The levels of this protein also drop in the presence of topotecan, but then return um, upon drug washout. And then tubulin, which is not a long gene, is not affected by this manipulation. And so uh, given that this one drug, topotecan, could downregulate so many long synaptic genes. We then were very interested in um, assessing whether or not synaptic function would be um, impaired. And so we, we did this a number of ways. I'm only showing you one example here. This is looking at network activity in these cortical neuron cultures, where we, um, we noticed that um, after you, if you let the cultures grow to about DIV 10, days in vitro 10, they, they form synapses with one another and ultimately burst in synchrony. You can see these bursts electrophysiologically if you patch on the cells, um, but more remarkably you can see this using uh, calcium imaging and you can literally see every single neuron in the dish firing at the same time. And so over here, we're looking at these uh, vehicle-treated cultures in ACSF, that's artificial cerebrospinal fluid. And each of these lines, these different colored lines, represents a different neuron. You can see that each of the neurons in the dish is bursting at the same time. We then added a drug called gabazine, which uh, dramatically increases the amplitude of these bursting events, of these bursting events, so you can really see that all the cells, are, all the neurons are firing at the same time. And we know this is synaptically mediated uh, because if we add a drug called DNQX, this blocks the glutamate receptors, uh, the activity completely goes away. KCL is something that will depolarize the neurons just to show that they're, they're still alive and uh, capable of um, calcium-mediated influx. But what was really quite remarkable is when we added topotecan at a dose that, that downregulated a lot of synaptic genes and synaptic proteins, uh, this bursting activity was, uh, was basically eliminated. We saw no evidence of network activity in these cultures. And then even after driving um, activity with gabazine, uh, we still saw no activity. And this is just the quantification of the, the dramatic reduction in activity. And so this, this raised this idea that uh, topoisomerase inhibitors, which were down-regulating many um, autism candidates, might have an effect um, if it, uh, administered during neurodevelopment, or if other drugs like topoisomerase inhibitors um, uh, were sort of exposed during development, they might have effects on, on, on brain function or brain development. So I want to highlight another gene that, that is clearly linked to synaptic transmission uh, and is also a very high-confidence autism candidate. And this is the gene um, SCN2A. It's also known as NAV1.2. Incidentally, it is a relatively long transcript. Um, this is a voltage-gated ion channel. And several uh, point mutations, they all seem to be missense mutations, um, have been identified in autistic individuals in this channel, all in the vicinity of the ion selectivity filter. Very recently, 
uh, from Kevin Bender's lab, who's at UCSF, he, um, tr he functionally characterized these autism-linked mutations in the channel. And what he found is that they dampen or eliminate channel function. And so they're uh, essentially function like, functioning like hypomorphs. They're reducing channel activity and hence reducing, um, presumably reducing excitability in neurons. And so when this uh, finding came out, I found this intriguing because it turns out there is a class of environmental use chemicals that target uh, these same channels. Um, and specifically, um, it's a class of chemicals called pyrethroids. And so what do we know about pyrethroids? Uh, these are, this is a class of insecticides, so they're designed to kill bugs. Um, and as a result, they're commonly used in home environments to, to treat uh, pests, like roaches, for example. Um, they're also used on our food. Um, and it turns out that um, they're also quite common in humans. And so there's this um, a study, it's called the NHANES study, that uh, samples human blood and urine for um, commonly used pesticides and other residues. And they, uh, in the, the last data set, which I think was collected in uh, 2010, they found that pyrethroids uh, or pyrethroid metabolites were present in the, the blood um, and urine of, of kids um, ages 6 through 11, all the way up through adults 60 years and older. Um, so humans are definitely exposed to these these chemicals, and so what do they do? They um, they they work on these voltage-gated sodium channels, and they prolong the open state. So they keep the channels open when they're open. Eventually, these channels close and inactivate, and so then the py the pyrethroids also um, keep the channels closed for a longer period of time. Acutely, when you add these to cultures, uh, we know that they stimulate immediate early gene expression. Uh, so you can transcriptionally see the effects of these chemicals. They cause massive calcium influx um, that you can pick up with calcium-sensitive dyes. But uh, longer term, what happens is they reduce spontaneous network activity, presumably because they're maintaining these channels in a closed conformation. And right down the street from where I work um, at um, EPA, Tim Schaefer's lab has been studying these um, pyrethroids in neuronal cultures and has found using multi-electrode arrays that are, is again, looking at this bursting activity in cultures that as you increase the dose of pyrethroids, that can dramatically uh, shut down the, the bursting network activity in these cultures. And this is with two different pyrethroids. And then there's also this study, which I think is intriguing. This is a, a really nice study that was done by uh, Herbert Hertz Pijotas group, um, showing uh, a clear epidemiological linkage between uh, several uh, uh, pesticides, but particularly pyrethroids, class two pyrethroids, and autism risk. And so in this study, they were looking at the uh, proximity of women in California to uh, pesticide runoff. You know, California is perhaps unique in that they take very good, um, uh, they keep track of uh, what herbicides and pesticides are applied um, throughout the state um, and have very uh, granular data. And so it's possible to, to link um, autism, <clears throat> um, autism uh, in, in parents with their, their exposure th uh, threat. And so what they also were able to show is that the, the linkage was to um, exposure during the third trimester in the prenatal period. 
And so this highlights the, the possibility that pyrethroids might represent environmental risks and, and also highlights uh, the need uh, or, that, you know, or the possibility that if we find chemicals that act like pyrethroids, they might also represent environmental risks for autism, especially since they're targeting a sodium channel that's already implicated in autism based on de novo mutations. So the other pathway I want to talk briefly about is the, the Wnt or beta-catenin pathway. So this is a pathway that's uh, been studied extensively in the context of cancer. We know that mutations in this pathway can drive excessive cell proliferation. Uh, there are a number of uh, drugs that are designed to inhibit this pathway with, in an effort to treat cancer. Uh, at the core of this pathway is this molecule called beta-catenin. This molecule is normally held in check by a destruction complex that includes um, uh, several kinases, including GSK3-beta. So in the destruction complex, beta-catenin is phosphorylated and then destroyed by the, the proteasome. But in the presence of a ligand, and specifically Wnt ligands, uh, that bind to a co-receptor and, and the frizzled receptors, the destruction complex is destabilized and that allows beta-catenin to build up in the cytoplasm and then ultimately translocate to the nucleus where it interacts with uh, TCF-LEF uh, transcription factors and turns on Wnt target genes. And so the Wnt pathway is um, clearly implicated in autism. Uh, Alan Packer, who's at the Simons Foundation, published a paper just this past December looking at all of the, the autism candidates and just um, at, at whether or not they had a connection to Wnt. And he found that at least 16% of all of the ASD candidates have a, a, a connection to the Wnt, the Wnt pathway. So this is clearly a, a pathway that's enriched um, um, in autism. And I just want to highlight again CHD8. So this is our you know, what most people would consider the highest confidence autism candidate right now. Uh, these are uh, ex uh, pictures of several uh, children uh, or individuals with CHD8 loss of function mutations. And one of the characteristic fe features is macrocephaly, so an enlarged uh, head uh, in these individuals. This is uh, head circumference data from two of those individuals uh, showing that they're on the upper um, decile of the of the head uh, head circumference growth chart. And so uh, this wind uh, signaling is interesting for another reason um, because of uh, another finding that has been made by some of my colleagues here, Joe Piven for example, uh, cortical overgrowth, so brain overgrowth is a relatively common phenotype in many individuals with autism. You know, so Piven's group uh, had a paper published in Nature just uh, two weeks ago now where he was able to, to show that uh, structural changes in the brain between the ages of six months and 12 months of age uh, actually can be detected and precede, precede the, uh, the actual diagnosis of autism at two years of, of age. So there clearly are structural changes taking place in the brains of individuals with autism before the behavioral um, symptoms show up. And so the Wnt pathway is one of these pathways that, that has the potential to, to, to be driving this cortical overgrowth. And so the Wnt pathway is also interesting for another reason. Um, it activates, uh, there, there is an environmental risk um, linked to autism that activates this pathway, and specifically valproate or valproic acid. So this is an anti-epileptic drug that's been used for decades to treat epilepsy. Uh, it's been known for quite some time that it can cause birth defects uh, when women take it during pregnancy, um, so they try to minimize exposure. Uh, nonetheless, if a woman has epilepsy, um, 
uh, as I understand, they, uh, the doctors will often recommend uh, she, they stay on the drug if no other anti-epileptic uh, works uh, because the risk of losing the child or, uh, or dying during pregnancy from a seizure is greater than the, the risk of having uh, a child with birth, uh, birth defect. Um, so um, valproate is also um, very commonly used in uh, rodent literature um, to model autism. So we know that prenatal valproate exposure models autism in rats as well as in mice. And then there was a recent paper um, in J Neurosci, Journal of Neuroscience, showing that um, prenatal exposure increases cortical thickness. So again, this gets back to this idea that you have a drug that is linked to autism risk in animal models anyhow. Um, and activates the wind pathway and it can also affect structural changes in the brain. But perhaps most uh, intriguing uh, is this paper that came out in 2013 looking at women who had taken valproate during pregnancy uh, and what they found is a, a significantly increased risk uh, of autism in children who were born to moms who took valproate. So I'd say this is another really strong uh, environmental risk for, for autism. And so this then uh, begs the question of, can we find other chemicals that act uh, like valproic acid um, during development or in neurons? And how do we do this? The last pathway I want to talk about is neuroimmune activation, because this has also been linked to autism risk in, in humans. And so maternal immune activation, um, viral infections uh, during the second trimester of pregnancy uh, are epidemiologically linked to autism risk. You can model this in animals by injecting uh, poly-IC, um, and the rodents that are injected with this, uh, the offspring will have uh, features, uh, behavioral symptoms consistent with autism, uh, social deficits, for example. And then even post, um, uh, in adulthood, uh, there seems to be evidence of neuroimmune activation in, in autism. So this is a really a pioneering paper from Dan Geshwin's lab where they uh, looked transcriptomically at what genes were affected in the brains of uh, postmortem samples from individuals with autism. And what they found was that in many, but not certainly not all, in many individuals with autism, uh, they found that um, gene, gene, genes that were downregulated were synaptic genes um, in these individuals, and they called this module 12. They also found that these same individuals uh, showed upregulation of um, immune genes, and specifically microglial and astrocytic type genes. So I like to summarize this as the, the transcriptional signature of autism, which is downregulation of synaptic genes and upregulation of neuroimmune genes. Um, and there are many other studies looking at just microglial activation and neuroimmune activation in individuals with autism, and that does seem to be a consistent feature um, in, many, in many children and adults. And so uh, our idea uh, is to, to, to try and identify environmental use chemicals that target many of these pathways that are implicated in autism. So I highlighted synaptic function, uh, misregulation of long synaptic genes, and just one chemical as, example, as an example, these topoisomerase inhibitors. Uh, sodium channels are clearly linked to autism. Um, pyrethroids uh, inhibit the channels. So hyper or hypoexcitability um, also has the potential to increase risk for autism.
talked about the Wnt beta catenin signaling pathway and one epi you know, one environmental risk that clearly um, increases risk in humans and in animal models. And then lastly, neuroinflammation, which is uh, may, it may may or may not cause autism, but it certainly is uh, present in individuals with with autism. And so, how do we go about finding chemicals that target these pathways? So the approach that we've taken is a transcriptomics approach uh, to try and prospectively identify environmental risks. And so we started with um, a library of chemicals put together by the EPA. It was a little over 300 chemicals um, from the ToxCast Phase 1 library. And so this is a library of chemicals that are commonly found in the environment. This includes herbicides, pesticides, fungicides, plasticizers, etc. And then we also added uh, as part of this initial uh, screen topotecan and two other topoisomerase inhibitors as positive controls and then we use vehicle treated negative controls. And so the idea was to, to test all of these chemicals on cultured cortical neurons uh, and then use RNA-seq to identify transcriptomic changes. Um, as you might imagine, RNA-seq is not um, cheap and so there's, it wasn't practical for us to do, um, to do this at many, many doses, and so we had to pick one dose, and so we, we set our screening dose at 10 micromolar, unless that dose killed the neurons. And so what we did is we pre-screened the entire library for toxicity using a simple live dead assay. So we screened all the chemicals at 10 micromolar. For any chemical that killed the neurons, we would then lower the dose until we found a non-toxic concentration. That non-toxic concentration would then be our sequencing concentration. We dosed the neurons at the non-toxic dose in 12 well plates, waited 24 hours, and then collected RNA and did paired in RNA sequencing. Um, and then there was a lot of batch correction and, and you know, all the details for exactly how we process the data are, uh, have now recently been published. But one of the things we wanted to do before we went too far was to make sure that these uh, neuronal cultures, these mouse neuronal cultures, uh, had you know, looked similar to the human brain because in the end our goal was to transcriptionally compare uh, gene expression changes in mouse cultures with uh, gene expression changes in postmortem human brain samples. And so over here what we're looking at is an immunostaining from one of these cultures with NUN which is a neuronal marker, GFAP which is an astrocyte marker, and IPA1 which is a microglial marker. And you can see from this pie chart that uh, most of the cells in the dish are new and positive neurons. There are also a small number of uh, glial cells, um, astrocytes and microglia. So in, in these experiments, we, we added a drug to block uh, proliferation so that, so that the cultures wouldn't be taken over by these proliferating cell types. And that gives us a, a neuronal enriched culture. We also took RNA-seq data from these cultures and then compared that to RNA-seq data from human tissues. And so uh, this is uh, GTEx data. So this is human RNA-seq data from many different human brain regions or other human tissues. And much like the previous uh, slide, what we did here is we colored all of the human brain tissues in red and all of the other human tissues in black. And then we ran a simple Pearson correlation just to see how similar was the mouse transcriptomic data from mouse cultures to all of these human tissues. And what you can clearly see is that the mouse neuronal cultures uh, look more like uh, human uh, brain regions than, to, than they do to other um, human uh, cell types or tissue types. So this at least provided some face validity, validity to the idea that the mouse neuronal cultures um, uh, transcriptionally look like human, uh, human brain. 
We also uh, ran another comparison um, relative to human embryonic stem cell-derived neurons, because these are you know, ES-derived neurons or IPS-derived neurons are often commonly used to, to study um, uh, autism mechanisms in, in culture. And so um, what was interesting here is that you know, ES-derived neurons are, really represent the, the gold standard of um, the gold standard for um, for, for neurons, um, human neurons, but when we looked at the, the transcriptomic data, we found that they they looked more like various tissues of the, the female re reproductive system as opposed to uh, various brain regions. And we think a lot of this you know, has to do with the fact that these neuron-enriched cultures really are just made up of neurons. They don't have uh, the diversity of cell types that, that make up the brain. And so if the goal is to transcriptomically compare neuronal um, uh, gene expression to human brain tissue, uh, we think it's best to actually have uh, a, a system that has many of these cell types because the transcriptional changes are not going to necessarily just be coming from neurons. And so after having shown that cultures, these cultures are uh, a good model, we then did these experiments. Uh, and what you're looking at now is uh, what's called a, a cluster gram where, where we uh, looked at all of the RNA-seq data after it was batch corrected to define chemicals that alter gene expression in a similar way. And so going across the top here, the x-axis, if you will, are the 300 chemicals. And then along the y-axis going down are the 5,000-plus variably expressed genes. And so we, we excluded all of the genes that were just not expressed from the analysis or didn't change across the conditions because they provide no information. Uh, so we only focused on genes that showed some variation in expression across the samples. And so I'll we'll start off with the topoisomerase inhibitors. We we're very pleased to see that they, they clustered together in this analysis because ultimately this process took us over two years to collect the data uh, across many batches. So it was nice to see that the three positive controls all essentially found one another. They all clustered together, um, and they clustered together because of common transcriptional changes. So if we move on down here, blue highlights genes that are down-regulated. So there's a big patch of blue down here, and we know that these are all, uh, a lot of these are the long genes. And the way we highlighted long genes in this plot, if you scroll over here to the right, we put a tick mark next to any gene that was 100 kilobases or longer. So there's a big patch of black here because there's just a lot of down-regulated long genes. The topoisomerase inhibitors also down-regulated this little patch of genes here. And when we looked at what they are, I'm going to scroll over here, we found what they are is immediate early genes, uh, FOS, NPAS4, BDNF, etc. So we think this, you know, this really makes sense because we have a class of chemicals that are down-regulating synaptic genes and dampening uh, spontaneous activity in the, these cultures. And so by dampening spontaneous activity, you're also going to be dampening these immediate early genes, which are normally turned on in response to electrical activity. So I just want to briefly highlight this cluster here, cluster one, uh, because that has the opposite effect. Uh, instead of turning down immediate early genes, it turns up uh, immediate early genes. And it also uh, reduces the expression of a few ion, uh, potassium channels. And overall, this would be a transcriptional signature of enhanced excitability. And it turns out that two of the, the, two of the pyrethroids in this um, uh, data set were located in this cluster and they both happen to be class II pyrethroids. So we're, we're very interested in this transcriptional signature because it seems to be a good readout of pyrethroids or pyrethroid-like molecules that, which are causing hyperexcitability in the cultures. 
and they could also represent uh, environmental risks for, for autism. But for the purpose of this talk, I'm going to focus on cluster 2 chemicals. These are a class of chemicals that uh, upregulated, as indicated by red, many uh, neuroimmune genes like thrombospondin, CX3CR1, um, MKI67 is a marker of proliferation, and many cytoskeletal genes were also upregulated. And then downregulated were um, ion channels and some of the, the longer synaptic genes. So this is a class of chemicals that sort of, at, uh, based on just what I've told you, uh, seem to be turning up and down some of the same genes that were misregulated in the brains of individuals with autism. But we wanted to look at this in, in greater detail, and so we used a technique called gene set uh, enrichment analysis to look at uh, how similar each of these clusters uh, were transcriptionally to human uh, brain pathologies. So we looked at transcriptional data from human aging brain, uh, ALS, Alzheimer's, uh, these two autism uh, brain sets, the Geschwin data set, which is Vonnegut, as well as Dan Arking's data set, this Gupta et al., and then several other disorders. And then with gene set enrichment analysis, it um, assesses whether or not the upregulated genes uh, in any one of these clusters, say the upregulated genes in cluster two, show a correlation with the upregulated genes in any of these other data sets. And what we can clearly see if we just focus on the autism data sets is that the genes that are downregulated by cluster two were significantly also downregulated in uh, postmortem autism brain. The genes that were upregulated by cluster two were upregulated um, in postmortem autism brain. And we saw this for two different data sets. And so uh, at um, at one level, it looked as though these cluster two chemicals were transcriptionally mimicking uh, what was going on in the, the brain of, uh, of individuals with autism. And what was also uh, important to point out here is that none of these other clusters, one, three, four, five, or six, showed this similarity. So even though we're working with neurons, the only uh, transcriptional signature that looks like the autism brain um, was in response to this class of chemicals. What was interesting is when we looked at this data is that these chemicals also showed transcriptional similarity to uh, several uh, forms of neurodegeneration, like Alzheimer's disease uh, and Huntington's disease, and also showed similarity to aging human brain. And so what we ultimately think this uh, signature is is one of, of neurodegeneration. Um, and this is intriguing. Uh, my colleague that I've already mentioned, Joe Piven, has been looking at older individuals with autism and he's finding that uh, uh, quite, a, quite a large number of them uh, have um, Parkinson or Parkinsonian-like symptoms uh, to the tune of about 25% of all of the, individual, the older individuals he's tracked down. This contrasts with um, Parkinson incidence of one in 5,000 in the general population. So there, there may be some underlying neurodegeneration that's taking place uh, in the brains of individuals with autism, and this transcriptional data might be picking this up. And cluster two chemicals in particular might be uh, exacerbating this this pathology. And so what are these cluster two chemicals? Um, I highlight two of them here, um, thenamidone and paraclostrobin. Uh, these are chemicals that I had never heard of in my life, and I'm sure many of you had never heard of them either. It turns out these are both um, a relatively, uh, come from a relatively new class of fungicides called strobilurin fungicides. So we wanted to look at in more detail at what genes uh, were up and down uh, regulated by these two chemicals and how similar they uh, they were at a transcriptional level. So these are just uh, RNA-seq experiments showing that uh, many of the upregulated genes um, 
are uh, the same between these chemicals, and many of the downregulated genes are also the same. So that was quite surprising. It wasn't surprising, but it was interesting given that structurally they don't look like one another. We also used a, a chemical prediction software, and based on this chemical prediction software, they also concluded that they don't structurally look like one another. So they don't structurally look like one another, yet they cause uh, common transcriptional effects. We also validated these transcriptional changes using quantitative PCR with some of the, the genes that were uh, upregulated. So these are uh, GST genes, glutathione S-transferase, MU1, uh, GSTA1, HMOX1, which is hemoxygenase, hemoxygenase 1, and REST, a gene that's normally induced in Alzheimer's or aging brain. And we were able to show that phenambidone would uh, upregulate all of these uh, chemical, all of these genes. We also showed that phenambidone dose-dependently increased many of these genes. So this was a nice validation by qPCR of what we were seeing by RNA-seq. So what do these chemicals do? Uh, it turns out that uh, these are this is a class of chemicals which were designed to kill fungus uh, by poisoning mitochondrial complex three. So as you know, the mitochondria are the energy source of the cell. Um, there's a, a respiratory uh, chain that um, generates ATP. Um, there are two complexes in particular, complex one and complex three, that when inhibited will lead to the production of superoxide. And so uh, these cluster th uh, these cluster two chemicals, and specifically the fungicides, were poisoning complex three and presumably generating superoxide. So this is something we wanted to look at to see if that was happening in these neuronal cultures. And so these are images of cultured neurons loaded with a, uh, a molecule called mitosox, uh, which will turn red in the presence of superoxide. So these are vehicle-treated cultures, and then these are phenamidone-treated cultures. And what you can clearly see is that the cells turn uh, red, and they also change shape. The nucleus becomes rounded, the cell uh, itself becomes rounded. So we, we call this a, a balloon cell. We could quantify this uh, at increasing doses of phenamidone. Um, the ROS is produced at the sequencing dose, so the red circle is the dose that we used for sequencing. We also could quantify the morphological change, and the morphological changes also took place at the sequencing dose. And so, as with anything that generates ROS, uh, it's quite common to try and block the effects by pretreating with vitamin E or an antioxidant, and so we found that um, in the absence of vitamin E, phenamidone causes uh, ROS production. When you pretreat with vitamin E, you can uh, block uh, ROS production. You can also, uh, this is the aberrant cell shape, uh, you can also block the change in shell, cell shape by uh, treating with vitamin E. We then spend some time to try and figure out what might be going on to change the cell's morphology. Uh, it was almost, it was somewhat indicative of a cytoskeletal effect. So we, considered actin and microtubules, and in the end it looked like um, these chemicals were having effects on the microtubule network because a drug called uh, Taxol, uh, Paxlitaxel, uh, which stabilizes microtubules, could also blunt the uh, uh, production of ROS, so this is uh, without Paxlitaxel, this is with Paxlitaxel, uh, and it also could blunt the formation of these aberrant cells. Um, so an antioxidant or a microtubule stabilizer could blunt the effects of these um, these mitochondrial inhibitors on on um, on ROS production and cell cell morphology. 
And so ultimately, um, our goal in the research is to, to really accelerate the, the pace of discovery, uh, accelerate the pace at which we find chemicals that target cluster two uh, or any of these clusters. Um, ultimately, uh, as many of you know, there are thousands of chemicals, over 80,000 chemicals currently approved for use in the environment. The vast majority of these have not been extensively tested using uh, toxicological tests in animals. Um, and our you know, RNA-seq approach, while uh, useful, it's also very labor-intensive and costly. It typically uh, costs about $200 per replicate, and that's after multiplexing. And so what we really wanted was a, a better way of, uh, of doing these experiments. And so the approach that we're working on now, this is all unpublished work, um, but it's to, to use a targeted sequencing approach to really accelerate the pace of discovery. And so the approach we settled on is called RASL-seq. Uh, RASL stands for RNA annealing, selection, and ligation. Um, and it really is um, uh, remarkable in that you, know, we, you, know, you can do this in a 384-well dish. Uh, we, our lab has had prior experience doing drug screens with neurons in a 384-well dish. Um, and so this was a simple transition for us to make. So we culture neurons in 384-well dishes. And then this is a very simple procedure. Instead of using you know, labor-intensive and costly reverse transcriptase to generate cDNA, what you do is you lyse the neurons directly in the well um, and add these beads, magnetic beads, to fish out the polyadenylated transcripts. And you also add probes, which are shown here, that will bind to transcripts of interest, so like HMOX1, for example. And these probes, if HMOX1 is expressed, will bind to the RNA and be fished out um, as, uh, with the magnetic beads. You then use a ligase, an RNA ligase, to join these two ends together. And that makes a 40 nucleotide uh, probe. And at the end are uh, little adapters that you, see, uh, that you can PCR amplify um, and add barcodes. So there's a well barcode and a plate barcode. And so you can essentially uniquely label each well with a DNA sequence. You then PCR amplify, uh, and then ultimately mix everything together. Um, and uh, so that's amplicon pooling, and then sequence. And then you can deconvolute everything bioinformatically. Um, and so the uh, advantages of this is that it's a high throughput. It's an amplicon sequencing-based approach. Uh, we've gotten this, it's, it's automated, so we can process a 384-well plate in three hours. This is a, the robot that we use, we use a TCAN, um, and based on the barcodes, it has the potential to do over 36,000 uh, different combinations, um, and this is costing us just a little over a dollar per replicate, so it's under $2 per replicate, so a 100-fold reduction in cost. And so this is just some, some sample data that we've uh, been gener that we've generated uh, using uh, probes that are now designed to interrogate these three clusters, cluster one, which is the pyrethroid types, cluster two, the neuroimmune signature, and cluster five, the, the long gene um, topoisomerase uh, signature. And so uh, what you can clearly see is um, with cyflutherin, which is a, a pyrethroid, as we increase the dose of cyflutherin, that uh, increases the expression of uh, the immediate early gene probes that we added to this uh, this uh, experiment. And what's nice is that this gene expression is, real, is unambiguous. None of these other chemicals are inducing the expression of immediate early genes. 
we then look at phenamidone and show that that dose dependently increases uh, the expression of these neuroinflammatory genes and downregulates uh, some of the synaptic genes that we've added to the, the mix. And then topotecan, as we increase the dose, uh, dose dependently downregulates these long synaptic genes that we've added and also dose dependently upregulates UB3A. And so this was an observation we made several years ago is that these topoisomerase inhibitors could turn on um, UB3A. And so we're able to show that uh, with RASL-seq data as well. So this does seem to work. Um, and now that we know what genes mark these different clusters, there's no need to do RNA-seq. We can now do RASL-seq. Uh, and it's much, much less labor-intensive than quantitative PCR or really any other approach out there. And so the, the goal is to use uh, a high-throughput screening technology, which would normally be used to find drugs, uh, but now to use it to find chemical risks for autism. And so the next steps that we envision uh, in this process, uh, one is to assess exposure threat to humans with environmental sampling data. Because with a screen of this magnitude, uh, we're going to get a lot of chemicals that hit cluster 1, uh, cluster 2, cluster 5, et cetera. Um, and while we may find chemicals that strongly activate uh, gene expression, they, they may be irrelevant risks if humans aren't exposed to them at any meaningful level. So assessing exposure threat is going to be very important uh, in these subsequent studies. And then ultimately, uh, we then, uh, to the extent that we can do in our own lab, uh, is to validate risk potential in vivo with mouse models. So do the chemicals, quote unquote, cause autism alone, uh, or do they um, cause uh, autism only in genetically predisposed backgrounds, such as mouse models of, of high confidence autism genes? And so the way we're looking at exposure threat um, initially is to focus on environmental sampling data. And so uh, fortunately, the USDA uh, and the EPA keep track of uh, pesticide residue levels on many of our foods. And so we also, uh, they also keep track of usage. And so we've been mining a lot of those data sets um, as a first pass to look at um, exposure threat. And so this is just looking at uh, paraclostrobin, which is one of the cluster two chemicals. Uh, it was first registered for use in the, in the environment in 2002. That's what the little red arrow means. And ever since registration, its use has been uh, on an upward trajectory. Um, and if you look at the paper, you'll see that for all of these uh, strobilia and fungicides, their usage, they were all registered around 2000, uh, and their usage has been going up. So they're very effective fungicides. The farmers are using them to, to treat rusts and things like that in their fields. But of course, if they're using them in the fields on our food, uh, the residues are ultimately going to be on the food. And that's what's being shown over here. This is looking at residue levels, um, the, the highest ever detectable residue levels on plants and what, what plants had these high residue levels. And so spinach um, uh, and uh, kale were sh uh, consistently showing up as having uh, uh, high quantities of paraclostrobin. And at this point, I should just point out that you know, this is the, the maximal level. Um, you know, these are found at you know, much lower average levels uh, on, on foods. Um, and so, so you know, uh, this is to ser serves as a reference point as to the potential maximal exposure level that, that one might, might receive. And so to summarize um, what I've talked about so far regarding cluster two chemicals, we know that they mimic the transcriptional changes seen in autistic brain um, and also seem to mimic uh, more generally a, a neurodegeneration signature. 
we know that praclostrobin is found on conventionally produced foods um, at levels that could cause biological effects in humans. And so this is based on a, a study published by the EPA using something called reverse dose symmetry. And so what reverse dose symmetry does is it takes those environmental sampling levels that I showed you in the previous slide and tries to back calculate whether or not those levels have the potential to uh, affect biological processes in humans. Um, and the biological processes they were looking at are all in, modeled in vitro with cell-based assays that they've, they've run in-house. Uh, and so praclostrobin came up as one of these um, uh, chemicals for a potential concern. So it's something that's on their radar, um, but at this point there's very little known about uh, the long-term uh, health effects of these chemicals on, on, in animal models. So they have also sampled baby foods, and so uh, these 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 uh, chemicals are present there. So if there's anything that has non-organic spinach, for example, uh, which is a common baby food, uh, these the chemicals could show up in the in those baby foods. The good news is that you can avoid them. So organic food is also sampled by the USDA and the EPA, uh, and these chemicals are not found on organic foods. So there's a way to reduce exposure. So we, you know, we're obviously interested in like other ways, other exposure routes, and so in the process of our research, uh, we came across um, this patent, which was um, was um, uh, issued was uh, filed by Syngenta, who's actually right down the road from where where we work, and uh, this patent relates to uh, using these fungicides in wallboards. And so if you can read the yellow here, it says the invention relates to treating wallboards with a fungicidally effective amount of a strobiliarin or strobiliarin type fungicide. And so this patent was issued in 2012. And so I did a little bit more research to try and find out if these product, if this product actually is on the market. Um, and it turns out that it is. Um, so uh, starting in 2009, um, these uh, wallboards uh, were uh, became available. Uh, I actually went to my local um, uh, big box real retailer and took this picture. Uh, they make the outside of the boards purple to distinguish them from uh, typical wallboard, which is white. And so, for those of you not familiar with building um, in any house or place you might be living, the walls are made out of this stuff. Um, and usually, they use this these white wallboards. But, uh, of course, many people are afraid of black mold and, and things like that, and so uh, they've been advertising the use of these purple wallboards uh, in homes, initially wherever there's the uh, potential for uh, water, uh, like kitchens or bathrooms, um, but they are now also advertising them for use throughout the home, like literally the walls and the ceilings and everywhere. And so, I mean, it's still early. These are relatively new products, but what this highlights is that that uh, human uh, we we currently don't know if the uh, fungicide is getting out of the wallboards in the dust. Um, we suspect that's that's possible, and so we clearly need to do additional environmental sampling. Um, people living in homes with this type of wallboard versus a you know, standard non-fungicide laced wallboards to find out whether or not people are exposed at a chronic low level to these these fungicides. Um, and if they are, do these chronic low levels have adverse uh, health outcomes? And so <clears throat> the way we're approaching this, we want to validate risk potential in vivo. And so we're doing this with um, animal models. And so we want to look at whether or not um, these fungicides, or ultimately, or ultimately we want to look at 
chemicals from each of the clusters, um, but do these chemical risks cause or exacerbate autism-related phenotypes in mouse models? Ball-type mice or de novo mutant models that, that we've made in the lab. Um, and so for the strobilurins, we know that in culture they induce ROS, they destabilize microtubules, uh, and they cause this transcriptional signature of autism. And so ROS um, has been linked to autism in a number of studies. Destabilization of microtubules, as you might imagine, um, if occurred, if it happens during, the during brain development, could affect neuronal migration, for example, or even synaptic function. And so one of the first things we wanted to do is just to try and find a dose that, that would work in vivo. And so what I'm telling you now are just some ongoing studies and sort of the direction that our lab would like to go. So, so we looked at a lot of the, the existing toxicological data for these fungicides and found that um, basically all of the tests used uh, an aqueous-based solution, either methylcellulose or carboxymethylcellulose. Um, and when we tried to reproduce those experiments, we, uh, we noticed the following, and that is that the fungicides really don't go into solution in these aqueous solution in these aqueous uh, solvents. You have to use something like corn oil to get them into solution. And so a lot of the tox uh, testing that was done in, in animals and mammals used these solvents. And so we're a little bit concerned that maybe some of the, the doses um, that they uh, identified uh, may be off um, by, um, by some factor. You know, uh, we don't really know fully what the factor is yet. We're trying to resolve that. But nonetheless, it highlights the, the need to use a, an appropriate solvent to study the, uh, the chemicals. And so this is just looking at, at what happens in uh, at much lower doses with these chemicals. This is now looking at praclostrobin, uh, 100 mg per kg, 10 mg per kg, or just the corn oil alone. And these are all oral, so these are oral gavage to try and mimic the, the route of exposure that humans are getting through their food. So at the higher dose, we found that uh, these are all adult animals. At the higher dose, um, it would cause diarrhea. Um, and even at the, the low dose, there was diarrhea uh, compared to the corn oil alone. It would also, the high dose also caused a, a change in body temperature that lasted for at least uh, two days. Um, it also uh, reduced body weight for at least uh, two days. And we also looked at uh, running wheel activity as a, as a proxy for motor function. And we found that um, the higher dose uh, decreased motor active, uh, running wheel behavior for at least two days. And I should point out at this point that you know, this, this doesn't necessarily mean that the motor, system, motor neurons have been damaged permanently. Um, animals could run less on their wheels simply because they're not feeling well, for example. So you can't disentangle that. Um, from, from these studies. All we can say is that we've now been able to identify a higher dose which causes um, uh, clear physiological effects and a lower dose that has intermediate effects on the animals. And then these are the types of doses we can then go in to look at uh, with prenatal exposure studies. So much like valproic acid, when uh, valproate is uh, exposed from uh, many of the exposures are acute at around E11.5, but you can also do uh, long-term exposures throughout the entire period of cortical gen corticogenesis, um, and then look at how that ac chronic or acute exposure affects outcomes, like brain, brain size, um, cell composition, looking at the transcriptional signature for, for autism, and then also look at later time points, like three months or six months, looking at behavioral uh, outcomes, like uh, social behaviors, um, or um, um, brain changes much later in, in life. So these are the kinds of the experiments we'd, we'd like to do as, as we identify um, bona fide you know, environmental candidate risks uh, and validate them in vivo. 
and then hopefully uh, the epidemiologists and others can pick up uh, from where we left off to see if there is a bona fide risk potential in, in human populations. And so I will just end there by acknowledging that this, this is obviously a work that's gone on in my lab. Uh, many people have been involved in this project. The NeuroSeq project uh, was really spearheaded by Brandon Pearson and Jeremy Simon in my lab. And then many other people are now following up. Alex Tuttle is doing a lot of the exposure studies. Uh, and Samita is doing uh, work with uh, RASLSeq so that we can really greatly expand the, the scope of our, our screening. So I'll leave it there, um, and I can take questions now or later. I'm not sure when the questions will happen. Hey, guys, this is Alicia. If you want to type in a question into the question box, please go ahead and do that. Um, I did answer one person's question already about the location of the webinar after, the, after we're finished. Um, and it, again, it's on. Will be on the Autism Speaks website and also asfpodcast.org. Um, while you're typing them in, I know Jill had a quick question um, that may get us started. Sure. Hey, Jill, did right, you? Sorry unmute? about that. Oh. Yep. So, yep. I just unmuted myself. I'm so sorry about that. Um, Dr. Zilka, thank you uh, so much for that um, very dense presentation. And I, I realize there's so much information in there and so many layers of, of thinking. I'm going to have to review it a couple of times before <laughs> I can uh, really speak at all intelligently about it. But um, uh, I was intrigued by many, many aspects of it. And, um, you know, I, unlike you, I'm sort of an unapologetic alarmist about, um, you know, what I see as the explosion is in autism cases. Um, I think the great weight of evidence suggests pretty strongly that we've seen a, a very steep increase in neurodevelopmental irregularities, whether you want to call it autism or something else, um, over the past several decades. And um, one of the areas that I'm very interested in um, actually is in long genes. And I wanted to ask you about that. I'm interested in the particular environmental vulnerabilities of long genes. Um, now, you're looking at it from the perspective of um, direct effects on developing neurons. My interest is actually in the germ cell level, right, before the, the, the neurons are even generated. Um, how could the gene expression, gene activity, you know, transcription, of these long genes be affected in the you know, sperm and egg and really their early progenitor cells, the primordial germ cells. And I'm interested in, in environmental exposures, obviously, as well, but more acute ones, um, things like prenatal tobacco exposure and um, some drugs um, as well, uh, pregnancy drugs. Uh, so I'm, I'm wondering just if you can speak to the vulnerability of long genes and, and maybe how they could be perturbed um, you know, both at the germ cell level and, and at the somatic level that you're examining. What is it about them? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, in simplistic uh, sense, uh, they're, they're a bigger target, right? So if you have random mutations, um, you're more likely to hit the, the big thing as opposed to the little thing. Um, and so uh, that's, that's one, one way of thinking about them. Uh, but we also know that these genes are themselves just more vulnerable to damage um, because they're big. We know that, um, that, as I alluded to, like to transcribe a big gene, it takes a long time. And in most cells, that's not a, a problem. Cells, cells that are dividing have uh, sort of, they try to 
time their their RNA transcription uh, such that it doesn't occur during the cell cycle when the DNA is being copied. Um, and they do that because the RNA polymerase and the DNA polymerase are running along the same template. They're all run, you know, copying either RNA or DNA from the same template. Um, and as you can imagine, it's just like on a road, if you have ca two cars coming at one another head on, there's a chance there's going to be a collision. And so cells try to prevent these collisions from happening by essentially you know, preventing RNA polymerase from transcribing genes during the cell cycle. However, some long genes are expressed, and uh, this now leads to um, uh, transcription uh, and, uh, and replication collisions, or the potential for that. And so short genes, as I mentioned, can be transcribed in about 10 minutes, a long gene, 8 to 10 hours. Cell cycle can, can last 12 to 24 hours, uh, depending on the cell type. And so if you're transcribing one of these long genes, and you're starting to replicate your DNA, there's a chance uh, that the RNA and the DNA polymerase will collide. And if that happens, then that can lead to DNA damage. Um, breaks will occur. Uh, the cell often doesn't fix the breaks correctly, and that can lead to, to deletions or duplications. Uh, and so there has now been direct evidence that these long genes are more sensitive to DNA damage in, di in dividing cells. Um, from a recently published study from a group at, uh, at Harvard. So long genes are, are more sensitive to damage just by virtue of the fact that they're big, but even more importantly, by virtue of the fact that they are uh, they have the potential to be transcribed during S phase and uh, are subject to this replication-dependent DNA damage. Wow. Hi, um, this is you. Valerie. Could I hop in with a comment? Sure. On the long genes issue in, in the germ, germ cells? Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Okay, one of the one of the other issues that needs to be studied more, I think, with respect to um, with respect to effect of environment on on uh, genes that affect neurodevelopment, is the area of epigenetics, because um, many of the chemicals that Mark has talked about have, will probably exert an impact on the DNA or gene regulatory mechanisms through epigenetic changes, which we know very little about. So you keep that in mind. I don't know, um, first of all, um, germline cells like sperm especially are very um, quiet with respect to transcriptional activities. So the probability of long genes being transcribed um, incorrectly or, or ending prematurely in sperm is probably not that big a deal at that point, but I think that epigenetic change could changes induced by various chemicals can very well ex, um, affect expression uh, when when the um, the gametes mature mm -hmm. and during thank development. You. Thank you. So thank you so much, uh, Alicia. I see we have some other questions. Do you want to save them for after Doctor Who, or do you want to go ahead? So, uh, hi, Nigel, this is Matt. I think Alicia had to run. So maybe we'll oh. try to squeeze one or two more questions in, and then we can we can go on, if that's okay? Sure. Sure. So, I've got it here. Okay. So, so, Mark, the next question is from Ann Bauer. She asks, given, given the valproate findings, are you investigating other commonly used medications in pregnancy and infancy in addition to environmental chemicals in your screening? 
Uh, yeah, the answer is yes. Yeah, I've, I've uh, corresponded with Anne before, so I say hi to her. Um, yeah, we're interested not just in these environmental use chemicals, but uh, FDA-approved drugs, because obviously that's what Valproate is. Um, and so we want to go through and reevaluate all of the FDA-approved drugs in the context of these neuronal cultures and, and see if any of them affect some of these same molecular pathways. Uh, so that's, that's on our list of things to do. Yes. Okay, great. Thank you. And um, I'm going to do one more question, and then we'll go to Valerie. And uh, there are more here, so we can come back to them uh, at the end. So next question I've got is from Martin uh, Karazi. His question is, what period of exposure is assumed to be critical? Just prenatal or prenatal and postpartum? Does this vary by the type of exposure? Yeah. Um, so I, I think the the verdict is still out to some extent, but there I think that the, the evidence is overwhelmingly pointing to prenatal exposures uh, as being important. Um, the genes that have been um, mutated in, in autism, you know, people have looked at when they first get turned on. Uh, they all come on. Um, many of them come on mid-fetal development uh, and excitatory neurons of the cortex. So that really uh, points to the cortex and prenatal period as being an important period. And then all of the uh, epidemiological studies so far point to prenatal exposure. So prenatal valproate, uh, maternal immune activation, um, pyrethroid exposure, it's all prenatal. Um, and so, so I think that that is probably when the exposure is occurring to, to increase risk. Whether or not postnatal influences um, uh, uh, autism risk, uh, I don't. I don't know. I, I don't. I haven't seen any data to support that. Okay, great. Th thank you, Mark. So, mm -hmm. Joe, I'll, maybe I'll pass it back to you to introduce Valerie. And again, we didn't get to all the questions. We'll try to get some more questions in um, at the end. And, and feel free to continue to add questions to the comment box on your dashboard. Okay, um, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Valerie Hu. Um, who is Professor of Biochemistry and Molecular Medicine at George Washington University in DC. I had the pleasure of actually visiting her lab a couple of years ago. Um, she has a PhD in chemistry from Caltech and uh, she is the mother of a son on the autism spectrum so she's definitely part of my tribe. I have two kids with nonverbal autism and she redirected her research uh, focus toward autism uh, and um, I'm very glad to have her here telling us about her research. Uh, take it away. You may have to click on show my slides, Dr. Who. Okay. Yeah. Do you see that? Okay. Jill, thank you very much for inviting me to be a discussant on Mark's um, presentation, as well as inviting me to present some of our our uh, current work on gene environment interactions in autism. Um, the approach that we're taking to try to understand the uh, causes of autism is what we call integrative genomics. And in this approach, what we're trying to do is to consider all of the various factors that may be contributors to autism risk. And to summarize the, all of the different types of factors that need to be considered, I've uh, assembled this, what I call a pyramid, that collects all of the things that we really need to understand. At the base of this pyramid are the ASD phenoty phenotypes. That is the behaviors and symptoms that are obvious, 
as well as brain circuitry. And the most immediate determinant of that with respect to the factors shown here is gene expression profile or the level of gene activity, which Dr. Zilka has talked extensively about. And above that, we need to put not only genetics, but also epigenetic mechanisms that affect gene expression profile. In the literature or in the media, we hear a lot about genetics, which is very important. But equally important are the means of gene regulation, which fall into the area of epigenetics, or the software that allows the readout of the genes on the DNA. And at the very tip of this pyramid, um, I've added the, the intrinsic and extrinsic environmental factors which, which can act as triggers uh, to affect everything below uh, this level on this pyramid. So aside from considering all of these different factors, it's really important to integrate across large-scale studies. So what I'm going to tell you today uh, is about our studies in which we've integrated epigenetic and gene expression profiling studies using monozygotic twins and SIB pairs who were discordant for the diagnosis of autism. In brief, by integrating DNA methylation uh, analyses with gene expression of the same set of twins and SIB pairs, we were, our attention was called to a set of 25 genes whose uh, expression levels could be regulated by the level of um, methylation. One of these genes is the gene called RORA, which is now the focus of our studies involving gene-environment interactions that may increase risk for autism. So why the focus on RORA, which this formal name is retinoic acid-related orphan receptor alpha, which is a nuclear hormone receptor, which means that it can transcriptionally regulate a host of other genes. So what did we know about RORA at the time of our beginning these studies? Um, most of what was known was from RORA-deficient Aurora deficient mouse model called Staggerer. It was known that RORA could protect the brain against oxidative stress and inflammation, that it is a circadian rhythm regulator. The loss of RORA leads to developmental defects in the cerebellum as well as loss of Purkinje cells. RORA-deficient mice, interestingly, are sexually dimorphic with respect to the production of cerebellar neurosteroids and Purkinje cell survival during aging, with male mice being more severely affected. Rora deficiency is often studied in the context of ataxia and hypotonia because of its effects on the cerebellum. But interestingly, it was also reported that Rora deficient mice exhibited preservative behaviors as well as deficits in spatial and discrimination learning. Now, being a parent of a child on the spectrum, this really piqued my interest. So what are the implications of these observations on mice to ASD? First of all, Carlos Pardo, as well as others, have shown that neural inflammation and oxidative stress have been detected in the postmortem autistic brain. Secondly, uh, circadian rhythm genes are implicated in autism, not just by our studies on gene expression profiling, but also by recent genetic analyses from France and, I believe, Denmark. Purkinje cell deficiency is the, is the earliest noticed and most consistent brain abnormality in ASD. And um, because of the sex bias, we know that males are more affected by ASD than females, going back to this sexual dimorphic uh, manifestation of deficits in, in the RORA-deficient mice. And interestingly, RORA is a long gene. It's 741 kilobases, 
and it's a gene that's critical for nervous system development and function. So our, our new findings linking RORA to autism are the following. Uh, we showed that RORA expression is reduced in both peripheral cells, that is lymphoblastoid cell lines, and brain tissues from a sub subset of individuals of, with autism. And I say subset because no single deficiency or genetic defect is going to affect everyone on the spectrum. Secondly, we showed that increased methylation at the RORA promoter is associated with decreased expression in the lymphoblastoid cells from siblings with ASD, but not from the control siblings. We also found that RORA is oppositely regulated by male and female hormones in a manner suggesting its potential involvement in the sex bias in autism. And then we further showed that lower RORA expression coupled with higher correlation between RORA and its target genes in regions of the male brain in contrast to female brain suggests that RORA deficiency may have a greater impact on males than on females. And then finally, we found that RORA can act as a master regulator of many autism risk genes. This study was done using chip-on-chip -chip analyses in which we, um, we investigated the potential target genes that could be regulated by RORA. And we found that out of 2,500 potential target genes, more than 400 at the time of publication in 2013 were already listed or identified as autism uh, candidate genes by genetic and functional analyses. These genes uh, had functions such as uh, neurogenesis, synaptic transmission and plasticity, axonogenesis, cognition, learning, and memory. Then we validated a handful or six of these genes these potential target genes by uh, functional knockdown and, and chip qPCR analyses, and they all confirmed by those two, uh, those two analyses. Then we further looked in the autistic brain uh, that were deficient, brain samples that were deficient in RORA um, expression in comparison to control brain of the age and sex match um, samples, control samples. And we found that all of these RORA targets were also reduced in those um, ASD brain tissues. If you look at some of the functions of these six validated genes, you see that synaptic function is, is a major feature of, of the functions of all of these genes. And in addition, we have mitochondrial integrity that's associated with one of these genes. Aside from these genes playing a role in the cellular processes that are known to be affected by autism, we also see that many of them relate to higher order functions, um, such as uh, social cognition, mental retardation, repetitive behavior, spatial memory, et cetera. Um, since this study was published, using RNA-seq analysis of the RORA knockdown uh, cells, we found an additional 500 more targets that were confirmed. Um, using RNA-seq analyses. But the bottom line here is we believe that any mechanism that disrupts RORA expression, be it genetic or epigenetic mechanisms or environmental factors, may increase risk for ASD. Okay, so how do we link RORA deficiency to environment? The impact of sex hormones on RORA expression suggests that RORA may also be dysregulated by endocrine-disrupting chemicals. Endocrine disrupting chemicals are compounds that either mimic endogenous hormones or antagonize their actions.
thus interfering with normal hormonal signaling. Therefore, we asked whether or not Aurora might be a target for gene-environment interactions involving EDCs that may increase risk for ASD. In a nutshell, we're wondering whether or not we could use Aurora expression as a canary in a coal mine to alert us to chemicals that could possibly raise or elevate risk for autism by their impact on Aurora, which we have shown before, can regulate a whole host of other genes that are already implicated in autism pathology. So what are EDCs? Here are some examples of endocrine disruptors. Uh, atrazine, which is a common ingredient in herbicides or weed killers. Bisphenol A, found in plastics, it's a compound that I think um, most people have heard a lot about. Phthalates, which are found in soft toys, flooring materials, cosmetics, and coating for pills, medications. Polychlorinated biphenyls, which are found in coolants and which were used in coolants and lubricants. It's now been banned in this country as well as Europe. Polybrominated diphenyl ethers, which are flame retardants and used in textiles. As well as valproic acid, which um, Dr. Dr. Zilka mentioned before, which is used as a drug for epilepsy, bipolar disorder, and major depression. What's the problem with these EDCs? Well, for those long-lived EDCs, such as the PCBs and PBDEs, there's the effects of cumulative exposures in that these chemicals not only hang around for a long time in our environment, but, but if they're somehow taken up into the body, they accumulate for a long period in fatty tissues. A second concern involving EDC exposures come from the possible epigenetic changes that are induced in the DNA and possibly even in germline cells that may be um, propagated transgenerationally. So these are major concerns with regard to um, endocrine disruptors. So what I'm going to talk about now is some of our preliminary studies involving the weed killer, atrazine. It's a common herbicide. The EPA um, states that a 90-day average of 37.5 parts per billion, which translates to 175 nanomolar, is considered safe in community water systems. This chemical is easily absorbed by the GI tract, in other words, the gut, lungs, or skin. And the literature reports that uh, there are major effects of atrazine on sexual differentiation in wildlife, as well as limb deformities. So what do we know about the effects of atrazine on humans? So this is from a study published in 2009 that tracks the level of birth defects, congenital birth defects, against um, months of the year. In other words, the time of conception is what's shown in the uh, upper curve here. And it's plotted together with the uh, levels of um, atrazine concentrations in surface water, which provides our drinking water which can serve as drinking water sources. What I'd like you to note here is that at the very peak here, where you have the maximal uh, correlation with the birth defects, the level of atrazine in the surface water is only 5.5 nanomolars, which is far below the, the EPA-considered safe level in surface waters. So with this, we decided to test the um, effects of various concentrations of atrazine on the level of expression of aurora. And as you can see from this uh, slide here, we see biphasic effects. 
In fact, at low sub-nanomolar concentrations, we see a spike increase in the level of aurora expression, where it's at doses that, that are at 10 nanomolar um, and above, we see a decrease in level of aurora expression. But we wondered, too, since aurora is a master regulator of many other genes, we wondered what the gene expression changes were um, at the uh, transcriptome level across the genome. So here we did a study um, of gene expression profiling on Affymetrix human transcriptome arrays in which we showed that for each dose of atrazine tested, that is 0.1 nanomolar, which gave us a spike in aurora expression, and 10 nanomolar atrazine, which gave us a decrease in the level of aurora, we find each one of those could, could um, change the level of expression of roughly 1,000 genes each with about 400 overlapping genes. Among these genes that are differentially expressed, about 80 of them were overlapping with the aurora targets that we had previously identified. And 22 of those aurora targets were um, common, were shared between the um, transcriptomes of the cells that were treated with 0.1 nanomolar atrazine and 10 nanomolar atrazine. So if we look now at the pathways that are affected by atrazine, um, the genes that are induced by both 0.1 nanomolar and 10 nanomolar atrazine, we find that canonical pathways that affect uh, neuronal processes are significant. And these include axon guidance signaling, glutamate receptor signaling, efferin receptor signaling, and so on. If we look at neurological functions that are overrepresented among differentially expressed RORA targets, that were induced by both 0.1 nanomolar and 10 nanomolar atrazine. Here I'm referring to the 22 genes that are aurora targets affected by both of these concentrations of atrazine. We find that migration of granule cells in the cerebellum is the most significant function that's been, uh, that's affected, that's represented in among these 22 targets. But in addition to that, you see synaptic functions that are, that are also affected, um, and this is something pointed out by Mark, as kind of a hallmark of um, dysregulated genes in autism. Amongst the neurological diseases that are overrepresented, overrepresented amongst this set of genes, we see death of cerebellar granule cells, but we also see um, other sort of pathologies that associate with autism, such as mental retardations and seizures, as well as some movement disorders. An interesting, um, an interesting observation that came to me while I was reviewing for this, this webinar, reviewing Mark's um, papers for this webinar, is I noticed that there seemed to be a similarity amongst the genes that he had previously identified as um, long genes impacted by topotecan that also overlap with the autism candidate genes. So looking at our, uh, our data in the context of his long genes, what I found that a number of RORA targets which are, that were reported in our 2013 paper, these are highlighted in yellow, were uh, also amongst his long gene set. And then I looked at unpublished RNA-seq analysis from RORA knockdown cells, and these are uh, indicated in the pink. So what we can see here is that the majority of these genes from his list of long genes impacted by topoisomerase inhibitors 
are also genes that are very much affected by aurora deficiency. So in summary, then, um, what I think I've showed is that aurora is a functionally significant autism candidate gene whose expression um, and protein product is reduced in autism brain relative to that of controls, that it regulates and express a wide range of neurologically relevant genes implicated in ASD by genetics and functional analyses, that the impact of sex hormones on aurora suggests that this regulation of aurora expression by endocrine disrupting compounds may increase risk for autism. And our preliminary uh, evidence on, with atrazine does support this um, hypothesis. We also showed that differentially expressed genes that result from exposure to atrazine are involved in a number of neurological functions and pathways impacted by ASD. Um, and that our study suggests that this regulation of aurora expression by EDCs is a potential mechanism for gene environment interactions that may increase risk for ASD. And then finally, our studies, I think, together with Dr. Zilkus, suggest that we need to look beyond genetics to identify global gene regulatory mechanisms that may be disrupted in ASD, as well as the environmental contributors to such disruption. Okay, so I'd like to acknowledge the people in my lab. They're all students who have um, come through my lab at various points in the past. And the people that whose work that I've primarily highlighted in this short presentation is that of Tara Ritz-Saraschana, who did both his master's and PhD in my lab, Antu Nguyen, Ming Yi Xu, and Kristen Coker, now in my lab, who has been studying the impact of EDCs on rural expression. Thank you. Happy to take questions. Hello. OK. Uh, yeah, Matt? Yeah. Yes. Over to you. Yeah. So thank you very much, Valerie. So yeah, so just a reminder to, to anyone. Um, Who's listening to this? If you want to ask questions, please feel free to use the uh, questions box on the side. Uh, we we do have some questions left over from last time, as, as well as a new one. Um, let me go back towards the top here. Um, this one goes back to to Mark. Um, Mark, you had mentioned the connection between Parkinson's disease and autism's and autism, yeah. and the fact that there's there's a uh, much higher likelihood. Individuals with autism develop Parkinson's in the normal population. Um, the question was really, um, how does that fit into? They're, they're looking for a little bit more information about whether or not that link fits into sort of the theme of what you're talking about, and whether or not you see an environmental component that helps explain that association. Yeah, yeah. So the 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 similarity we see is with neuroinflammation. The these fungicides cause that transcriptional signature, um, and so we don't know what the connection between neuroinflammation and um, and autism is at this this point. Our, our suspicion is that a lot of these uh, autism-linked gene mutations or environmental risks for autism are tapping into a process that's somehow sickening neurons or making damaging neurons in such a way that uh, as the brain ages, uh, you see this signature of neuroinflammation. Um, so I hope that helps clarify. Yes. Hey, thank you very much. So now let me go to a question. Uh, that, that I think came directly uh, from Valerie's talk. Yeah. Um, this is from from Tracy, and she asked, from a layperson and a parent of an individual with autism, 
the very drugs my child takes, such as risperidone, etc., is laced with the very EDCs you spoke of, uh, phthalates. Is, is that correct? And, and sort of, do you have any any thoughts about the, that? Well, I do know that phthalates are often used as a coating for various medications. And I heard a very interesting study on the effects of uh, dibutyl phthalate um, on, on the expression of various transcripts, including non-coding transcripts in sperm. So this was really, really interesting. And it's something that needs to be um, studied, investigated even further. Because honestly, like Mark said, you know, we use there are a lot of chemicals in environments that have, you know, good good applications, at least for what they were intended for. But we really haven't explored enough uh, what are some of the downside effects of these, or rather the subtoxic effects of these various chemicals. Because if I'm not mistaken, many of these chemicals are tested for toxicity, but the levels at which you know, the lowest levels at which they're tested are far beyond the levels that we see, that is in the nanomolar levels, that really cause changes in, for example, aurora, and at the genome, at the transcriptome level, cause great, a large uh, amount of gene dysregulation, far below the levels at which they are tested for toxicity. Does this help? Yeah, and just to follow up, this is Mark, um, with what Valerie just said, you know, a lot of these chemicals, many chemicals are tested for toxicity, but you know, the concern I always have is that they're tested in wild-type animals uh, that, that are not necessarily genetically sensitized for AD, uh, Alzheimer's disease risk or autism risk or anything like that. Uh, and so it may be that much lower doses um, are not going to have an effect on a wild-type mouse, but if you look at this in a genetically sensitized background, um, you will see an effect. So I think the toxicity testing that's done is important, but it's not it's by far not thorough, and that's why additional studies like uh, what Valerie is doing and like what we're doing are really needed to explore the, the effects of these chemicals further. You know, Valerie mentioned PCBs. They were on the market for a long time. Well, they were in the environment for a long time before they were phased out. Um, so it'd be ideal if we can sort of find chemicals that are going to affect brain development sooner rather than later so we can remove them from the environment or minimize right. use. And, right. And I think we have to look at much lower doses in, in teasing out these more subtle effects that may not be apparent at birth. One of the very interesting things I noticed from that paper on atrazine in surface water is that the concentration which uh, correlated with the maximum levels of birth defects, congenital birth defects, is only in the five nanomolar range. Okay, that's way below the EPA recommended safe doses, and um, and those are those birth defects are those that are apparent at, I mean those yeah those defects were apparent at birth. But it doesn't speak to what might have might have uh, gone on in those individuals that could cause later uh, neural developmental problems. You know what I'm saying? That we uh, only know, that's only the tip of the iceberg with respect to the impact of very low levels of that particular uh, chemical on on human development. Yeah. And we don't know no, what I, I agree with you. And, and I think it's very clear the message of both Mark and you are are echoing is is that we need 
more we need more and better testing to truly appreciate this. But if I if I were to you know, maybe maybe I'm overreaching here, but if I'm to read into the intent of Tracy's question, I guess what what she, the heart of what she's asking is at this point, should she be concerned about the medicines she's giving her child, considering the the the, the concerns you've highlighted in your talks? How how would you help her best um, appreciate what you said and and whether or not there's something she should be taking? Uh, from this and thinking about how she's she's you know right now dealing dealing with her with her own child and thinking about the use of medications that may contain these these chemicals. Um, Matt, this is Jill. I'm going to pipe in here because EDCs is definitely one of my pet areas, um, and um, you know the the exposures that uh, the presenters have been talking about today are developmental period exposures. They're not what are called you know, later in life adult level exposures. And it's not that um, you know, endocrine disrupting drugs uh, or components of those drugs you know, aren't of concern in adult life, but there's really no showing at all that there's any relation to any risk for, for autism or neurodevelopment. We're, we're really you really have to focus on the very early in life, or you know, in my case, you know, germ cell level exposures um, to explain abnormal wiring and abnormal neurodevelopment. So um, I would definitely, you know, not be too concerned about that. And there are other there are other concerns with drugs like risperdone, of course. Yeah, I would I would just I would second with what Jill said. You know, everything that we've talked about is really related to prenatal exposure. So, something that uh, your child might be getting postnatally could have other effects, but it's probably not going to be related to causing or increasing risk for autism. Great, thank you. And I did, and Tracy wrote a note. I, I think we did we did get to the heart of her question there. So I appreciate both of you guys following up on that. Um, I've got a question here from Leah, which I think is an interesting one. Given um, the, you know, what's coming out of the talks, talking about a lot of the concerns around pesticides, agricultural pesticides especially, has there been any observation of increased incidence in autism cases in areas that are primarily agricultural? I think the answer is yes. If you look at the, the studies coming out of UC Davis, Irva um, Hertz Picciotto's group. Yeah, yeah that, 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 that paper that I highlighted in my webinar is a perfect example of that. They, they mm -hmm. clearly showed increased risk uh, for autism in proximity to pesticide runoff. Now the, the issue is that they don't know precisely what pesticide um, is increasing the risk. They, can, they could look at general categories like pyrethroids or, or, um, you know, or endocrine disruptors, for example, but they don't know specifically what chemical is involved. Great. Thank, thank you. Appreciate it. And so I've got one last question on the board here. Um, this comes from Bill Looney, and, and again, I, I don't think this one is surprising, but I think it's worth discussing here. Um, obviously, any time we talk about environmental exposures that could potentially impact uh, the likelihood of developing autism, um, the topic of, of vaccines is one that comes up. And that, uh, so just if either of you would be willing to, to comment on um, your thoughts on vaccines as a uh, you know, in, in, um, as far as their connection to autism or not? Uh, there, there is no connection. Uh, I think that's pretty clear from all the data that's out there. 
Thank you, Mark. Mm-hmm. Uh, well said. So I, I think that is all the questions. I think we've exhausted all the questions that have been asked by the attendees. Um, again, I, I really appreciate both uh, Valerie and Mark's time, and I think it's fantastic talk on a really interesting uh, area that, that I think, thankfully, due to your work, we're, we're finally getting a, a lot more, I think, meaty data to help us understand this interaction between genes and environment. Um, Jill, is there anything else you wanted to add? Uh, no, I just want to thank the presenters for outstanding and, as I said, very dense presentations that I think bear repeated viewing. So uh, thank you so much for in- incredibly good information and, and for your time. And thank you to everybody listening in. Yeah, th- thank you. Thanks, Jill. All right, signing off. Bye. Goodbye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye.